Welcome to the Joe Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Don Gonzalez. Joe Catholic is a lay apostolate formed in the fall of 2004 and then revamped to its current structure in the spring of 2009. According to the Second Vatican Council, the function of the apostolate is to influence the temporal order and cultural milieu into conformity with Christian ideals. It's in that light that our mission is to help equip everyday, ordinary people with the tools to evangelize and answer the universal call to holiness. We hope that this podcast helps do that and encourages you to pursue a deeper understanding of our rich Catholic faith. All right. Well, so we were talking about Triduum. And you brought your laptop and notes. Is it about this? Yeah, actually, I took some notes because... Um, the more I thought about it, this, this, we don't watch the clock, which I know you like to do. We could run long on this one, just because there's so much richness to this, uh, season. And Triduum is a season in the Catholic liturgical calendar. It is the shortest season on the calendar. And Triduum is just a, the word means three days. And it, it can mean three days in other, um, in other settings, but it's most often associated with the Easter Triduum, and on the Catholic calendar, what that includes is Holy Thursday, also called Maundy. Maundy Thursday. Maundy yeah. Thursday. M-A-U-N-D-Y. That's what comes from Mandatum. I learned that today in my readings. And what is Mandatum? I mean to mandate. I believe it does. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about why it's called that. Um, and then we have Good Friday, and then the third day is actually kind of a two days combined in one, and it's Holy Saturday, which is the day of Saturday, and then the evening, which is the Easter Vigil, which is the high note of the liturgical season for Catholics. Yeah. So was Triduum something that had gone away and came back with Vatican II, or has it always been there? Uh that's not an answer I know the question to. I didn't say I didn't see anything that suggested it went away and came back. Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing about it. Just, I, but that may be they just never talked about it that way. I remember Holy Thursday, Good Friday. Uh, what do they call Saturday? Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday and then Easter Vigil. So yeah, I thought what we could do is um, talk about each of the days in. In kind of a different couple of different ways. Number one, we could talk about them in terms of what happens at those masses and services, because on Good Friday, Good Friday is the only day of the year where we don't have a mass. It is a service, uh, and there are a lot of interesting things that are taking place uh, that are relevant for the rest of the year as well. And then secondly, what is happening in the liturgical readings? For those three days, and why? Because the third part is why. Why would it be important for someone to plan out their week to attend all three? All right. My contention is, I was like you. You know, I remember as a kid, I remember that we would we would go to Good Friday service because I remember one of the things that happened on Good Friday is the veneration of the cross. I remember that. I don't ever remember going to Easter vigil. And that may be a product of the fact that RCIA has recently come, that has recently come back. 
recently. Recently being 50 years ago or so. <laughs> yeah. But like you, I don't remember, at least in our family, emphasizing the notion of going every evening, going to Holy Thursday Mass and Friday and all of that. Okay. I think technically there's no Mass on Saturday because technically the Vigil Mass is really Sunday. I guess you might say that. Because I think I think Saturday, as far as the day goes, before the evening, is the only day of the year where there is no communion. Yes. Unless you're sick, they will still... Not just sick, but yeah. near death. Right. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. So, does that sound like a good framework to talk about? It does. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want it to be... Uh, Something that constrains the conversation is yeah. just a guide. So we, well, one we of the things I was mentioning to Markham is that, unfortunately, when we turn on the microphone, we do have a, a, a kind of a sense, or at least I have a sense of it's time to give a lecture, which is not the strong point of our conversations. It's better if it's just a conversation. So I, I think that, but it does help to have a framework. And uh, one of the things that I've heard about uh, the Triduum is that it's essentially one event. That is, yeah, that's correct. And that one event is the the uh, passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right. It made me think if all the seasons are in, in some way, if there's a value in thinking of them as one event. Obviously, we wake up and go to sleep and all that, but you know, it's I don't know. I've not heard anything else <coughs> described that way because I don't know that you know, like with Christmas. You don't really have a leading up to it like you do with the passion. There's something very unique about the the events that take place, particularly since we started Holy Week with Palm Sunday. And yeah. we follow that biblically as well. I mean, you see the story laying out. Yeah. So I think that's why it lends itself to that. I don't know that that's really the case with yeah. any of the other celebrations. It was always interesting to me that Palm Sunday actually went through all the way to the end. You mean in terms of the reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 actually the the correct title of the of the of the day is Palm Sunday, the Passion of Christ. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think the two things that happen. I don't know the reason behind it. I didn't research that either. But I think that this is just me spouting off the top of my head that it's it's the church's way of foreshadowing what's going to happen. Um, and also a reminder to us of that how quickly the people turn on Yes. Yeah. And we're just as capable yeah. of, of turning our backs on Christ as well. And so I think that's, that's one of the reasons behind it. One of the other things I thought about was that this was essentially a lynching. And, I mean, it, it transpired almost just like a mob Lynching. No, it's exactly the word I was thinking of as you were, as you were saying, that mom mentality that just kind of picked up steam yeah. and, and, and rolled forward. Um, but it, you know, to, to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, I think it's interesting is that um, many churches now have gone back to the idea of processing in, and you know, there's, the, there are some really unique things that take place at Palm Sunday. For example, there are two gospel readings. Right. There's the gospel reading that comes in with procession, which is him coming in to Jerusalem. Right. Um, and then the second gospel reading is the Passion reading. What's also interesting is that when you do the procession, 
um, members of the parish, and I don't know if this is liturgically correct or not, and, you know, somebody can comment on that if they want to, but at least in our parish, they allow the, the, the lady to process in behind everybody else, bringing in their, their palms, and then they go into the pews. And I think that that's actually uh, brilliant, because what it does is it allows you as to participate like you're there, right. waving. You know, I saw one uh, video by Busted Halo that, that uh, compared it to a ticket tape, tape parade. But that's kind of the big event that it was when Jesus was coming in because they thought he was going to be, that he was the Messiah, right. the political Messiah that they were looking for. Yeah. And then, and this is the only time in the liturgy where someone other than the priest or deacon is allowed to read the gospel, right. where you have the, the community participate by reading. And one of the things that they read that the crowd reads is crucified him. Yep. So they get to play that role of waving the palms. And so that's, I don't know about you, but when that, when we have to do that, that's very difficult. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a cartoon I saw where a priest is sitting there with this box and he's got a hammer in his hand. And he says, uh, father Brown is questioning the, uh, the, uh, Decision that he made to buy his crucifix from IKEA. Put <laughs> <laughs> the corpus under the cross. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can see the look on his face, and I think you know he's like. Uh, I think it's a brilliant cartoon. Well, and I can tell you that uh, you know we have a mutual friend Chuck Gura who makes crucifixes, mm-hmm. and he has to nail the corpus, the corpi, yeah, to the. Uh, to the crosses, and he says that that's a difficult thing for him to do. He, I think, what he's done is he's added a prayer to, yeah, before he does it. But it's and not an easy thing to do for him. Yeah, probably doesn't do it angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. Hope not. Yeah, no. So that that is uh, again that mob mentality. I mean, it, it really reversed itself in a matter of days. What four days? Three days? So one of the other things they do on Holy Thursday that um, was new for me when I first ran into it, I guess going on 10 years ago, was the washing of the feet. And I've seen that go through different iterations. I've seen it where they washed everybody's feet in the entire congregation. I've seen it where they just bring up, you know, 12 guys, wash their feet. Uh, I've seen it where the priest does the washing. I've seen it where the somebody else does the washing. But I guess the most... Biblically correct is 12 guys in the priest. That's correct. And I think that uh, the liturgical norms uh, require that. Yeah. And there's been a lot of debate recently because Pope Francis has deviated from that yeah. without changing the norms um, because he's uh, washed the feet of non Catholics and he's washed the feet of women. And right. It's caused a controversy unnecessarily, I think, but. I think his. I think the his. He's trying to model something there, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think that we've seen that in Pope Francis that he's. I don't want to say loosey goosey, mm-hmm. but he he's not as concerned about things like the rubrics and whatnot, and he, he takes his teaching moments where he can find them. <laughs> so <laughs> it um, seems like. So I know that there's some people that are critical of that, and you know, there, I think there's room 
that type of debate. So we're going to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about Holy Thursday because you just referenced one of the things that happens on Holy Thursday. So Holy Thursday actually um, starts earlier in the day. Earlier in the day, in most dioceses, they have what's called Chrism Mass. And that's where representatives from the various parishes in the diocese will go generally to the cathedral uh, of the diocese and they will go have the various oils that are used for liturgical celebrations. There are three of them. I don't know what the three different types are. Um, you know, one is used for confirmation, one of them is used for baptism, I think, and then one of them is used for the healing of the sick. Healing of the sick. And those are taken uh, and blessed by the bishop. Um, generally done on Thursday morning, but sometimes done earlier in the week. And then those are presented uh, at the Holy Thursday Mass. Oftentimes, again, I don't know if this is liturgically correct or not. So. But uh, in our parish, for example, they'll have somebody that's associated with one of those, like the RCIA person, whether it's the RCIA for adults or RCIA for children, will generally be the one that brings in the, the oil that's associated with baptism. Okay. And uh, someone that, uh, I guess, someone who takes communion to the sick will generally bring the oil for that. So, anyway, so that's how things. Start out on Holy Thursday. Right. Oftentimes, another thing that happens on Holy Thursday is the uh, is the um, I think I'm right about this. The priest and the deacon will prostrate themselves, mm-hmm. and that's a, a a throwback to their ordination because one of the, the well, the gospel reading I think it's from John for Thursday night is the uh, institution of the priesthood is one of the things that takes place. As well as institution of the Eucharist. What else happens on Thursday? So, the other thing that happens is that they, uh, let me make sure I'm right about this, they strip the altar and they remove the Eucharist from the tabernacle. Yes. Do they still turn or empty all the fountains, the fonts? Um, I don't know if that happens. Well, at some point they do, because on Easter ritual they read. They bless the water, the water again, yeah. and that's part, that's one of the rituals that they do during that mass. Yes. So it, I, I'm not sure if that happens on Thursday. Maybe Thursday that that happens. So and then Thursday and Friday, they don't actually end, right? You press out, process out in silence. That's correct. You're not actually dismissed. Correct. Because it's all one event. Yeah. I remember the first time I did that; it was a very powerful feeling to me. To, to know that this was beginning a, a something that was just going to kind of stay with me. I mean, it, it really did stay with me all the way through Easter Vigil. And I think that year was when um, Leon was being baptized and confirmed and receiving his first Holy Communion. Leon's my uh, stepson, and Rosie and I took him through RCIA when he was in high school. So. Yeah, Kevin went through RCIA at the high school. And that was the first time that we had done Trudeau. And we never done it before. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, and so what happens at the very end is you actually have an opportunity after a few minutes of needing to set up their Eucharistic adoration throughout the night. Right. In um, our parish, we do it at midnight. And then Friday comes. And um, there 
through some sort of services done at 3 o'clock. Thank you. Green says the stations. Can you hear her too? The stations have the clock usually at 3. Yeah, but it's St. Catherine. I don't know. Who are just masked? Do you remember what they said? It's not going to be stations this year. They said something else. I can find out though. And the reason 3 o'clock is important is because that's the that's the that's the hour that Christ died. Right. So, you know, it's a solemn moment. Yeah. Yeah. But your sister's right. The traditionally the stations of the cross are done at that time, and that's what we've done in the past. Yeah. In the middle of the day, it's kind of a precursor. I think what they've done in the um they may just do a prayer like Divine Mercy Chapel or something at three o'clock for those people that want to do it, but I think they've pushed back the stations to be right before the the service so that they'll get better attendance at these you know, the, the doing the stations at 3 o'clock, of course, makes absolute sense. And I was thinking, I had written a, an article that I called Raindrops, R-E-I-G-N, Drops. I had read an, an article by somebody who was really not happy with the movie The Passion of the Christ, primarily because the, the author was an atheist. And so he was spending a lot of time just trying to tear it down. And he talked about in that movie, as Christ dies, you see a raindrop come down. And he says, what's this? Supposedly God's crying because he just killed his son, blah, 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 blah. And my position is, no, that wasn't God crying. That was creation crying. That was a moment of creation crying. Because it says, in, in I think Paul says this, you know, all of creation is groaning in anticipation. So it, it's it's you know when Adam and Eve fell, it it disturbed all of creation. And uh, you may remember I was in in class. I made the comment that the whole universe has been the whole all of creation has been kind of like an out of uh, balance washing machine ever since. <laughs> I think it was Professor uh, Herman said, yes, exactly. So, to me, that was a raindrop, R-E-I-G-N, drop, right there at 3 o'clock. I'd like to add something, if I may, about Good Friday. Um, I went, the first time I went to Good Friday, as you may know, uh, my wife was born and raised as Mark as a Catholic. I was not, uh, but when we married... Back in '89, um, I went to Catholic Mass and liked it a lot, and so we just decided that we would raise our children Catholic. And so I went to Catholic Mass for 20 years before I actually converted. And but when we went to Good Friday, I didn't—I wasn't really prepared. I didn't understand. But when I went into the church, it felt really bad for the first time in all those years. Now, usually, when they go to church. I feel you know, good, I feel recharged, I feel loved, I call it the ultimate love. I really get that when I go to church. But that day, that Good Friday, it wasn't there. I didn't feel it. And I remember getting read and saying, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And she whispered to me, she said, he's not here. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean he's not here? I see that the crucifix, didn't I have a cloth yeah, over the crucifix? But that's not what, that's what freaked me out. What freaked me out was, oh, Feeling very, and it was like there was no holiness, you know, there was no, there was no love, and, and I could feel the absence of it. Not 
good and he says he's not here. Christ is not here, he's not here on Good Friday, he's not in the church. So I don't and this may sound bad, but I'll just be honest with you, I don't like going to Good Friday services because of that bad feeling that I get when I go in. Maybe I should be maybe I shouldn't do that because I also learned that every question I ever had about the Catholic religion, every every possible claim or, or any type of thing that was kind of not sitting easy with me about the Catholic faith. Once I researched it and looked into it, without fail, there's always a chemical uh, answer. And I go, oh, okay, now I understand. But I don't like, I just really don't like going to Good Friday service because of the fact that, that Christ is not in the church. I don't know if that's selfish or not, not about my feelings, but I found that to be very interesting that I could tell without knowing that, you know, really what was going on uh, until she told me. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a smile on my face because I know what you're talking about, A, and B, I mean, what a witness that you knew without knowing why, but you knew something was different. That just says something about our faith. You know, and that feeling manifested itself inside me. It wasn't a visual thing at all. Yeah. The feeling was manifested inside out. It was a terrible feeling. Yeah, I just remember feeling very somber. But I guess, I guess being raised, I knew Easter was coming somehow inside. But I, that, that's really an interesting comment, Markham. Uh, thank you for sharing that because that's. Uh, <laughs> I think that's well, I'd like to say, I'd like to say one more thing that I realized that that I thought of at that I had like a, a moment where I thought I thought I had a realization that still things for me, and what I felt like. What I was thinking and what I came across in my mind was, this is just a way of me knowing and feeling a little tiny bit of what it's like to be in purgatory without Christ, without without the without the presence, the power, and the love of God. It's just a, a, a real strong feeling that's not good, and I I don't know what purgatory is going to be like, but they say that that you you're you're removed from the presence of God. Don't have that love, and I think maybe that's Good Friday potentially taking the message of what uh, what that could what that might be being someone like God. I've never thought about that, but while you were saying that, I was reminded of one of God's Jesus' last words: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Oh yes, you're right. Yeah, somehow everything connects. You know? Yeah, it really does. Well, two things, I think, or maybe three. The first is, is that the feeling that you're describing, having felt on Good Friday, I think is exactly what we should be feeling. Uh, the realization that something's not right, and, you know, to take it a, maybe a step further is, um, I know the first time, at least, that I went through the whole trigger. And there's a little bit of exhaustion involved in because these liturgies are long. Yeah. Um, if you have, like, I have knee problems. Knees are hurting because the readings are long and tired because they tend to run long at night. And I think that makes you more open uh, to experiencing a deeper uh, sense of the Holy Spirit within you. And I think that's the those feelings are the, the Holy Spirit uh, kind of nudging you in that realization. 
his comment about purgatory, I think, is right on point because that's the way theologians have described purgatory as this absence from the presence of God and the fact that you know it. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a that's a perfect realization there. Uh, so I, I forgot what the third thing I was going to say about it. Oh, what I was going to say is that. Uh, lest there be any confusion, the one, the one thing I do want to say about Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is more than Jesus saying to his Father, why have you abandoned me? Um, you know, uh, we tend to cite Psalms by saying Psalm number 51 or Psalm 21, and I think that is from Psalm 21. Whatever Psalm it is, it was the norm in the, the Jewish faith to cite a psalm by its first line. So if you go and read the entirety of that psalm, it outlines what's happening next, what's happening at the moment, and what's happening next. But I think the other thing to remember is what happens after he dies, because he did allow himself to experience the fullness of death when he talks about going into, descending into Shoal. So I, th- I think that that's yeah Psalm twenty two, depending on which count yeah. you're using. Yeah. And uh, I have a, a story to share with that. Um, Rosie heard this psalm and she wanted to know what does it say in the Jewish scripture because she was going this is obviously about Jesus. So did we change it? And so I went to Half Price Books and found uh, the Tanakh. And Tanakh is the first three syllables of the Torah, the Nabim, and the Ketuvim, which is the law, the prophets, and the teaching, I think. And uh, I brought, I bought it, and I brought it home, and we sat down and looked at it, and she just, she just looked at me incredulous and was like, how can they not know? Because to her, it was just obvious. But yeah, that first, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the word, from the words of my groaning? You know, I think the other thing this points to is the fact that Jesus was fully human. He experienced that separation. Think about that as a member of the Trinity to experience that separation. I don't even think we're capable of experiencing it to the depth that he would have felt that. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Oh. Uh, what night, now this thing starts on Thursday, what night represents the Garden of Gethsemane? Is that in them? Or is that before this? Right. I'm glad he asked that question because we kind of glossed over it. It happens Thursday night. So after the washing of the feet, later on in that gospel reading, we see that he goes into the garden to pray. And that's where um, he has his apostles with him. And uh, he asks them to pray with him, and they fall asleep. Right. That's when he goes and says to them, could you not spend one hour with me? Yeah. And that's important because I got a little side story on this. Stacy, when she was going through RCAA, uh, asked the question of the deacon at the time who was in charge, or was one of the main instructors. Why is it a holy hour? Why is it one hour? Why isn't it 30 minutes? Why isn't it 15 minutes? And nobody gave her an answer. And it wasn't until we went 
to the treated woman yeah. that she heard that reading and she was like, light bulb. Yeah. That's the reason it's an hour. So, um, so anyway, that's when he experiences the agony in the garden and that's when uh, Judas uh, turns him over to the, to the soldiers. Yeah, and the reason I brought up the garden is I tend to be drawn to that anticipate what you were saying talking about when Jesus came back back down and found him sleeping. To me, the way what it means to me is that's mankind and our failing. And the fact that I know I when I was a kid I would I would think that I would have stayed awake and I'd have had back he would have found why could they stay awake? But now, as I'm older, I realize that it really is, to me anyway, my, my view is the representation of our coming in and out of our loyalty to Christ. To, you know, to sometimes we have doubt uh, and, and we don't uh, let Christ into, you know, dictate or not dictate, but be in charge of our life, pull away or worry, shouldn't worry. So I think but I think that the fact that Jesus after those guys did that, that Jesus still he understood, and a little angry I guess or upset, but he understood. And I think it's a message from God to us, his children saying, Look, I know you're weak. I know that this happened, okay? I know that you're gonna be faithful. But I want you to know that I love you anyway, that you are a fact. Because those guys, I mean, they wasn't very long after that that Jesus told, uh, did he tell Peter at that time, you're the rock? That's later than before. And then another thing at his crucifixion, he gave his mother to become part of the family in which was like John. And, uh, and I'm just like, he forgives you know, he sees our. our Overwhelmed by his guilt. Yeah. And so much so that he 
at least in one of the biblical accounts, hangs himself, kills himself. And without, at least from the scripture, without giving himself an opportunity to be forgiven. Right. Um, and you, you mentioned the movie The Passion of the Christ. I like the way Mel Gibson does the scene. So when Jesus is being hauled off in chains, he falls off a bridge, and he's hanging from the bridge by the chains and the ropes. And Judas is at the bottom of like this little gully area or whatever, kind of hiding out. And they they make eye contact. And for a moment there, the actor who's portraying Judas looks like he wants to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And Jesus looks at him like, I'm, I'm willing to forgive you. But Judas falls into despair. Yeah. And he never does. And I think it's important to look at that because it juxtaposed that, and it's in the movie as well, is that shortly after that, he shows the scenes the three times that Peter denies Christ. And then you very quickly see Peter become reconciled. You know, it starts with him going to Mary, falling before Mary. He never says anything. He just starts crying, and she puts her hands on him like, it's going to be okay. And so that's kind of a, also an example of how Mary takes us to Christ because we know later we know the rest of the stories and he's eventually reconciled. You know when Jesus after Jesus is resurrected when he does the whole do you love me thing. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something telling there. We talked about this last year when we talked about divine mercy about this trap that sometimes we fall into with our sins. That it's I think that there are two traps. One trap is that uh, you think you have plenty of time to go to reconciliation. That your sin's not that big of a deal, you know. And then there's some people who think there is no sin. So then I make use of the sacrament of reconciliation. But then there's the other is this um, the sin of despair, which is kind of a prideful thing as well. That my sin is so big it can't be forgiven. Right. So you so you don't make use of the sacrament. And that's that's one of the tricks of, of the devil. Yeah. You know he 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 hedges his bets on both sides. Yeah. You know, by making people think there's no such thing as thing or sin, or needling people to think that their sin is so big that Christ's mercy can't overcome it. Right. So. I think the other thing that's interesting to me about that is that you've got Peter and Judas, and you have what have become known as the good thief and the bad thief. We're, we're told a couple of times here that we have a choice. And we just have to make it. And it's choose death or choose life, basically. I think the other thing that's kind of neat about that, too, is it's like, you just got to have a breath in you. Yeah. You don't want to wait till that. No. You don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. But, I mean, even in the liturgy, I mean, one of the things that's telling to me is I was going back and uh, rereading something I had written about the Triduum, the Joe Catholic one. And I had written that the, the beauty of the liturgy is, is that, you know, we may have began the season of Lent with these great intentions of having multiple devotions and fasting twice a twice a week and you know a week and a half into it falling away. But now you have a, another opportunity to kind of get that you know that jump start in your faith with the truth. Yeah. And so God's always extending his hand in mercy to us to draw us closer to him. And how he uses the 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 liturgy to do that as well. Yeah. It's just a beautiful thing. I'd like to add in something here. I've been thinking about um, what I said 
regarding um, the mercy of God and what's represented in the garden. But I kept thinking about it's also a warning of our human frailty. And the phrase, you know, gird your loins and hold your Christ also because the apostles were his followers, but in a sense they're the guardians of the faith from the earliest time. And it's a warning to us as well how easily it is to follow it and to forget that mercy and forgiveness are there. I think that's a good point, Doreen. Thank you. It is easy to forget that mercy is there. And it's easy to start feeling mm-hmm. like you're a hypocrite, you know? Yeah. And and to 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 basically shy away because you don't want to deal with that fact about yourself. Yeah, and that's why right. And that's why I think it's important for there for people to connect with other people. Yeah. And you know, we Catholics get a bad rap because, and I think legitimately so, that sometimes it's individual families going to mass and leaving and not connecting with anybody else. Um. And I think we've gotten better, but I think that, you know, when you see, you know, there have been a couple of times, at least in our parish, I know that we had some guys in our parish that used to be really involved that suddenly disappeared. Yeah. And what, because they moved away or died. And, you know, I shared a story before that. I have a really good friend of mine who was very involved in his parish, another parish locally. He played the piano at church. He was a fourth degree knight, whole nine yards. And he, he and his wife encountered a crisis of faith. They, they thought that that she was pregnant, she was much older. And he actually contemplated taking her to get an abortion. And turned out she wasn't pregnant. But just the fact that he had that thought, he kind of entered into a little bit of despair. And his, his reaction was to run away from the church. At the very moment where he should have been running to the church, he ran away because he thought, how can I have these feelings and call myself Christian, that whole idea of hypocrisy. Yeah. And so he ran away, and nobody from that church reached out to him. Wow. So I think it's pretty common in the Catholic Church that we don't really know each other. And, you know, we've lived in the Baptist Bible Belt for 28 years, and my best friends are Baptists or Methodists. And um, the church, the school where I work, there's four other Catholic ministers that I know of, you know. And, we're, and it's And I don't know if it's part of the evangelical mindset uh, that they really are making sure that each other stays, you know, to the path of Christianity, or if Catholics are just a lot more aloof in general. It is very interesting thing to to, to witness. And uh, I go to a non-denominational Bible study, and it, you know, I'm the only Catholic there, and it's not a big deal. It's kind of round up the whole you know, night, but we think of one church where we really connected with people and we felt like we knew them and we cared about them and they were like our family. And then, honestly, there was a change of priest and we stuck it up for almost two years and we just couldn't take it anymore. He was a converted Episcopalian and it was very strange to have three talk about his grandkids and uh, he just was not joy-filled. Have a 
And then we started roaming around for the church, another parish. And we have to have another one yet that we really like this much. Yeah, you, you mentioned joyful. And I think that's the, if there was a message from Pope St. John Paul II, it was to be joyful. Right. And, and the, you know, the, the, if you read the writings of G.K. Chesterton, the man was joyful. If you read C.S. Yeah. Lewis, joyful. These are joyful people. And if we can bring that to bear, I think it can, it can change things. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just a telling comment that you made that, that, that your, your current pastor at your usual parish was not joyful. I guess it's easy for me to sit here and say that that's your opportunity to be joyful for, for everyone else. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but it's a real issue, you know, and, and I think that there is a problem or there is this issue with Catholic guilt. And I, I think that what we should learn from the Triduum is that there's a, there's a disordered aspect to guilt if it drives a wedge. Our guilt should drive us to, to Jesus, not away from him. And then there should be that joy and that reconciliation, which is why confession should be a happy time in a way. And anybody who's been to confession who hadn't been in a while can attest to that idea, that sense of they've just had a weight lifted off of their shoulders. And you can say, well, that's just kind of a psychological reaction. And my answer to that is, yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> because the, the original Greek term psyche is soul. That's what it is. Psychology was the study of the soul originally. So, yeah, it's a psychological, a real psychological experience. It's, it's real. To say, well, it's just psychological, people are acting like it's not really real. No, it's very real. Can I ask you a question? I've been dying to ask, kind of going back in regards to the Simonese for a second. Uh, there, I think there's one one of the books of the gospel that describes that scene, and the way they describe it is that, uh, anyway, what I've been led to believe is every sin that man has ever committed ever will commit, Jesus was feeling that, and he was so stressed out. That he actually, he actually, um, sweat blood. Now, I think that, if I remember, I looked it up one time, that, that's only in one of the gospels that he actually transpired blood. I was always curious as to whether that, whether that was true or representation. Guys, have you ever guys, have y'all ever, ever talked about that or, or do you have anything to reveal about that that I don't know? That, that is a real occurrence. There are people who have experienced that, and it is a, a, a physiological response to extraordinary stress. And what happens is that the stress is such that it breaks the capillaries in your skin. And as you're sweating, you know, sweat glands are, are not far away from the blood. And so the, the sweat will become tinged with blood. So my answer to your question is yes, that's a real thing. And I would not be surprised if that was the gospel of Luke. Cause he was, I think it is. Because he's a the physician. Doctor. Luke is a physician, remember that. Hey, 
Mark, can you turn your computer just a little bit? We're only in half the space. There it is. There's the line. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that makes a lot. Of, I never made that connection with Luke the dog. Yeah. Funny how it all ties together. Yeah. It's 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 got a name, and uh, I forget what the terminology is. Uh, I guess we could Google it. We could turn to Kevin and say, Kevin, Google sweating blood. But it, there's a there's a term for that, and it and it has been seen in human beings before. Right. I did not think very much. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. Hema well, being blood. If that hema being was ever going to do that, it would probably be that night. Yeah. Yeah, there's something else, since we're talking about different things we get out of Good Friday. As a kid, the thing that impressed me and became part of my prayer life as a real little kid, I would end all of my prayers with, not my will, but yours be done. As a kid, listening to Jesus ask his daddy to let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done, that that left an impression on me. And uh, anytime I've had anything serious that I've been really concerned about to this day, I will end my petition with, not my will, but yours be done. Of course, that does go back further to the Magnificat, where Mary says pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Don't <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm not laying down. I'm pondering. You have a thought? Well, no, I mean, I think that one could argue that... Um, all right, so I think that one could argue that that's a, a prefigurement of well, as well as what he... Did at the uh, Mary's prefiguring that as well. I mean, I think that's a. a I mean, think about it. That's the Annunciation, right? That's his. The moment she says yes, Jesus becomes incarnate, right? And so he's almost at the end of his life when he says, "You will be done." So I, I don't think that's an accident whatsoever. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's that's a, that's a wonderful observation. You know, Mark, one of the most impacting um, experience I ever had on a Good Friday, Shannon was speaking, and I was holding her in the front carrier, and I went to stage of the car, and I was overcome with the complete and physical and emotional realization of the depth of God's because. I mean, I had my baby in my arms, and, and I can't even imagine saying, okay, you're going to crucify for all of me. Oh, wow. And just surrender. And and I found it extremely overwhelming. And, and I was just crying during the station. And the station of the cross is extremely important to me personally. And, uh, I, and I think it's probably, I mean, I remember doing it as a child, but I had that I think that is, there's a connection way back in the Old Testament too, with God asked Abraham to sacrifice himself and at the last minute, okay, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I think it was a, a foreshadowing 
Yeah, because not only did he say you don't have to do that, he provided a replacement. Right. It is. A ram, right? A ram. A lamb with it. It didn't know that it was caught by its horns and it stick it or something. Yeah. It was just crap and he went over and got it. So that's way back. Was that 2,000 years before Christ or something? Oh, at least. Yep. So one other thing that happens on Good Friday before we forget about it is the veneration of the cross. In church, this is done a number of different ways. Some churches will pass a big cross around. Everybody touches it. Some parishes will have its stations with crucifixes. And people will come up and kneel before it, touch it, kiss it. And I can imagine if somebody comes in and sees that who's not Catholic, is like, what in the world are these crazy Catholics doing? Those were my thoughts. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but here's the recognition when we fast forward to Christ the King, which is the end of the liturgical the end of the beginning, right? It's the end of the liturgical calendar. It is. It is. And we realize that Christ's throne is the cross. Yeah. That's a symbol of his victory, you know? And, you know, because often, how many, how many times have you heard it? You know, why do you Catholics keep Jesus crucified? It's a reminder of the price that he paid for us, but that's when he won. Yeah. That's when the, that's when you were talking earlier about the scene in the movie. Yeah. When, because the other thing that happens after the tree drop is Satan realizes, I didn't win, I lost. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Mel Gibson, he, he, he had a lot of Holy Spirit moments in that movie because that depiction of Satan screaming in rage and, and frustration. Is not in the Bible, but I think it happened because what, what, what Satan messing with Jesus in the garden? Well, because I because sometimes I think I figured out that Satan actually in the garden uh, trying to you know tempt him again or something. Or what, what Satan there in the garden? There's scripture that that talks about that. I don't see that again. Gibson has him in there, and I think he's I think he's drawing a connection between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, probably not the most theologically or biblically sound. It's artistic license, yeah, for sure. But again, I think I think he's I think that his census fide is is legit. Did so, you want to say anything else about Good Friday before we move on to Good, uh, good, good Saturday, Holy Saturday? Yeah. That was playing in Saturday, right, Mark? Yeah. What was that? Bueno Saturday. Bueno Saturday. <laughs> Sabado Gigante. So in our parish, at least, like you were right, there's there's no Mass Saturday. And you know, liturgically, I think you're correct. With the vigil, Mass has to take place after the sun goes down. Right? Yeah. The norms are very specific about that. But one thing that does happen in parishes that do the RCA right is that there is an exorcism that takes place that day. Yes. Again, it's a minor exorcism, but it's and somewhat related to just this conversation about the, whether or not Jesus was tempted in the garden. It's that last chance that Satan has to tempt the people who are about to be baptized to not go through it. Uh, you know, so this is a final preparation for that. Yeah, and it's not. It's not that it's not open to the public; is that people just don't know about it. So, you know, 
I've happened in on it because I've done lecture prep that Saturday morning in preparation for the Easter Vigil Mass and happened to go into the church when they're doing it. It's normally just the catechumens and the deacon or a priest. Yeah. Uh, and really, Holy Saturday is supposed to be kind of a day of fasting as well as you lead up to the vigil because you're still kind of in that mode, you know? Yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine what the apostles were feeling. Oh, yeah. They probably lost their appetite. They had scattered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They probably weren't sleeping either. <laughs> Absolutely, they were. I mean, yeah, and that's depicted in the movie too. Because yeah. when John. I think it's John in one scene burst into the room where Mary and Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene are. You see, they're frightened because they don't know that the yeah. soldiers aren't coming after them, too. Right. Um, so, but then we get to Easter Vigil, and Easter Vigil is the high point of the liturgical season, and there's a lot going on there. Oh, you know? my gosh. It starts off outside yeah. where they light the Paschal candle. In darkness, so there's a whole celebration of light. The church is completely dark. There are a total of eight readings, seven actual readings, and then one epistle, epistle reading. Uh, and then sprinkled in between each of those readings is a song. Yeah. And it starts with the creation story. And uh, there's there's an Exodus story in there as well, which is the, the Passover. Uh, but what it, what it does is it's kind of... These are the eight highlighted stories from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that tells salvation history. Right. And you see it playing out and the culmination. And then right before the epistle, the lights come on. Yeah. And we sing the Gloria for the first time since the beginning of Lent. Right. It's powerful. You know, anybody that might be listening to this, if you've not gone, to that, if you're looking for a way to have a connection uh, on a level that maybe you haven't considered before, then this this triduum leading into Easter is possibly the most powerful church experience I've ever had. I can highly recommend it. I approve of Easter. Uh, I approve of the triduum. <laughs> Whoever came up with that, I give them a high five. So, so any general thoughts about the the triduum as a package? You had uh, asked me to make a comment about the liturgy of the hours, and uh, so the liturgy of the hours is the prayer of the church, um, and it is largely psalms. It's and it it's uh, a lot of different readings, and there's it's part of the whole pray you know all day long kind of thing. So there's a there's morning, there's mid morning, there's noon, there's mid afternoon, there's evening, there's night, all these prayers. And as a lay Dominican, I have a commitment to say the morning and the evening prayers, and the uh, it goes through a cycle. 
um, a four week cycle. All of the, the there's there's in the in the large liturgy of the hours there's four books, and so right now I'm in the Lent and Easter book, and uh, there's a Christmas and Advent book, and then there's uh, Ordinary Time, and uh, the four weeks don't change. So so through through Easter, which is roughly six weeks, uh, there's some repetition. What changes is the antiphons and the readings. And uh, during Holy Week, the readings just they just tie in and support all the readings that are happening both in daily Mass and then with the um, with the Easter. Well, that's precisely why I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were because. I mean, obviously, if you're reading the daily readings during Holy Week, you're seeing the story play out. Right. All the, the gospel readings, in particular, well, the Old Testament readings are generally from Isaiah and prophesizing the crucifixion. But then you see the events that are leading up to Holy Week. Right. So I was curious what the lit- how the liturgy fills in the blanks or adds yeah. to it. Mostly what it does is it keeps a presence in mind. And like I said, the, the antiphons are all very focused. The, they're, usually the antiphons are tied to the reading. These antiphons are tied to Holy Week, which you may wonder what the difference is. And, and what it is, for an example, um, commonly like, so in the, in the, in the liturgy of the hours, we always say, um, a gospel canticle in the morning, and it's, uh, it's I, I believe this is Zechariah, it's, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, he has come to his people and set them free. And in the evening is uh, the Magnificat. And, and usually the antiphons are pieces of those. But during the Holy Week, the antiphons are different. And so we have, for an example, Tonight, for the evening prayer, um, the antiphon is, uh, evil men said, let us make the just man suffer. He sets himself against our way of life. Uh, he took all our sins upon himself and asked forgiveness for our offenses. That's for today? Yes, that's for this evening. Uh, he took all our sins upon himself and asked forgiveness for our offenses again. Uh, in Christ, we have found deliverance through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, and then for uh, the Magnificat, it's uh, the master says, my hour is close at hand. I and my disciples shall celebrate the Passover in your house. So it's it's a variation from the normal process, but it just as you're reading, in a strange way, they amplify these two canticles because it gives sort of the, the backstory. It, it fills in, you know, it, it sort of explains what this is all about. Why did Jesus come? So uh, from a standpoint of just deepening the experience, um, it definitely does that. It just adds to it. It keeps a present to mind all day long. So. So that's that. Anybody else have any thoughts about Trudeau or any other experiences they've had in 
attending Purdue? Kevin, besides being Google Master and trying to eat chips as quietly as you possibly can. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Any thoughts? Do you have any memories when you went through, like, your first Easter vigil coming into the church? For me, the Easter vigil has always been like a solemn experience. Um, I've always focused, I guess I've always put my attention on the Easter vigil itself. Um, Holy Week has been that for me historically, regardless, because there's there's been some Lenten seasons where it's been like actually building my relationship with Christ, and then there's been some that just been a giant roller coaster. And so, regardless of where I'm at, come Holy Week, there's there always seems to be moments um, of, of of being beckoned to continue that walk, um, and then little things throughout the week. A prime example this year is actually um, an instructor in one of my courses at school. Uh, I informed her yesterday that I wasn't going to be in class tomorrow. And at the time, I just finished a test and my brain was convoluted and I couldn't remember why I wasn't going to be in class Thursday. And I get halfway to my truck and go, Duh, it's Holy Week. I'm going to be at Mass Thursday night. And um, so I sent her an email when I got home. And and she responded, and her response was simple, uh, but it still moved me. And because it's one of those responses you don't see coming and catches you off guard, she was open with me, and she said that she prays to our Blessed Mother every day that she, that she my instructor, um, can be the best person that she can be, and, and to enjoy this special um, season in the church. And like I said, you don't see that, you don't, you don't expect that kind of response when you're just kind of going, hey, I'll be here, Catholic, <laughs> Holy Week. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you get. So those are the kind of things that uh, I'm, I'm blessed that I, I those little nuggets yeah, that were gifted with. Um, but yeah, my, my journey is kind of a build up to, to Easter Visual. But for those who've never been, to an, an Easter Vigil Mass, I always tell them you got to do it at least once because if you're going with the right, the right kind of prayerful mindset that you need to have, um, and you realize the awesomeness that's taking place, not just within the life of the church, but for those who are trying to to enter the fullness of the church or to um, whether. Uh, whether they've been baptized or not, um, it's just wonderful. Yeah. And, and the most, the, the most awe-inspiring moment always for me is that one point, um, all the lights are all lights are killed and we're brought to complete and utter darkness and, and brought to a, a moment of silence. And it's just, it's always just impactful. Yeah. All right. So, Mark, I have a question for you if you feel like answering it. Okay. Um, if I understand correctly, when you decided to become Catholic, you did not go through RCIA, is that correct? No, I did correct. I did go through RCIA, and uh, Very short time. what happened was uh, they gave me uh, four RCIA minutes, and they said, read, who was from India, August the 2nd, English, but Kelly didn't quite understand that. 
they wanted me to get it. And, and people that went to RCI were from that night as well. So, yeah, I did go to RCI. Ceramic pear. Yes. 
had one last night with another couple that came home first. We got into, you know, the whole discussion of next week. Uh, it wasn't a, I guess it wasn't a complete state of the state of the convention. already, already know. We read the whole book of that. That's like a 40 page. So we kind of skipped around. And the last thing we tried to figure out is why is Moses, why would, why indeed is Moses denied But we talked about how Jesus was, was the pastor lamb, and you know, read how Isaiah. we read Isaiah, Isaiah with the last thing we actually read. And, He's been referred to as the fifth evangelist. So, did y'all eat with your loins girt and your staff in your hand?
this again. So we're actually driving down to Hondo, Texas, which is near San Antonio, This where we're leaving Friday to do this again. Oh, wow. So it's going to be an opportunity for... I've lost track because we, we have cousins. I have first cousins that I don't know because I haven't seen them in forever. Uh, and they're little, you know. Yeah. They're much younger than, than me. And then there are second and third cousins that are part of the group now. So it's going to be interesting. And they've done the whole, whole... The last time we did this in Hondo, it was funny because the, we had a we had a big place at the park and barbecued and all that bit. And there was a thunderstorm that came later that night and knocked out the power in the whole town. Oh, wow. So the joke was that you can't have the Velasquez family down to Hondo all at once because it will knock out the fire. So we'll see if that happens again. That was Kevin's first experience with one of those. He was, how old were you when we did that? Were you in high school yet? Maybe. Maybe middle school? Yeah. I just remember driving, we had to drive all the way to another town to find candles. Oh, wow. We were staying in a hotel in the evening. I mean, it was everywhere. Every, I'm not exaggerating, I'm prone to exaggerate, but every, the whole town was out of power until the wee hours of the next morning. In fact, there were some places the next morning that didn't have power. It was crazy. But anyway, we're doing that. And originally, it was going to be four generations driving down. So my mom was going to ride with us, but her uh, her aunt who raised her died uh, last week, and she went to went down early and started. Doing it. I will say, Rosie has started a tradition here with all of our extended family here, where everybody meets Easter after masses in. Uh, in a park, and we have food, run around and play with the little kids, and do Easter egg hunt and that kind of stuff. So we've been doing that every Easter, probably for the last ten years. So yeah, your body's got money. Do what? Your body's got money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Leon told me one year he was at his uncle's house at about six o'clock in the morning. They live out in Ennis, Texas. They woke up to the sound of a shotgun going off. Blam! Blam! And they get up and they come running out and their uncle Epjohn, I think is his name, is standing out on the front porch and goes, Dang it, I missed him! <laughs> he was trying to take out the Easter Bunny. So, uh, that's how he woke up the kids. <laughs> yeah. We lived in Cross Plains. We had a deck that was right off the kitchen. Yeah. The deck that a big stairway. I elevated up, fifteen steps up the deck one. And Dorian got to enter mind that she was going to do fake Easter bunny footprints. <laughs> so she used flour and water and made Easter bunny footprints on the deck. Yeah. For Shan to cup. Yeah. And it went over real big. Shan was like she was so weak when she was like, I don't know, five five years old. Yeah. And she saw the Easter bunny track with footsteps on the deck. But Fortunately, those footprints lasted about a year. <laughs> oh wow! They might have been real. You know? yeah. They might have been. All right. Well, well, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Love you. I love you too. We're not done yet because we have to close out with. Are we ready to close it up? I think so. All right, final thoughts. All right, final thoughts. So just so this will be probably up Friday. Probably. So um, 
last devotion out. There are two things uh, to recommend. Number one, Pope Francis, and maybe his Angelus, because this was part of Father Augustine's homily on Sunday. Five recommendations by Pope Francis. But one of them was, read each of the Gospel accounts of the Passion story. And so it's not too late to do that, even if you do it Friday. One of the things that Stacy and I I forgot to add this as a tradition, is we would traditionally start off Ash Wednesday by watching The Passion of Christ. So jump Lent and then watch it on Good Friday as well. Um, tough to do, but definitely gets you the spirit. Yeah. And then the final devotion that I would recommend is, uh, and you can find this online, is a, a reflection on the last words of Christ. And there's a series of those, but if you go to the St. Jose Maria, if you just Google the St. Jose Maria Institute, they have uh, some daily devotions up for the last words of Christ and just uh, reflecting on what those words mean and how what we can draw from that. You know, that he was dying on the cross, but there had to be special meaning for these last things. Yeah. So, this is one last opportunity to get a little bit more out of this. All right. Alright, as we close every episode, if you smoke them, if you got Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, please like us on your preferred podcast listening platform. Also, please consider financially supporting our podcast by making a monthly contribution of $0.99, cents, $4.99, or $9.99. You can do so by clicking the purple button at anchor.fm slash Catholic. If you would like to see show notes or learn more about the Joe Catholic Apostolate, please go to our website, thejoecatholic.org. Thanks again for listening to the Joe Catholic Podcast.